This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 57. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode is the fourth installment in the Core Essential series on preparing your clients for deposition. So let's jump right in. And by the way, if there are any additional points you'd like to share about what you tell your clients in getting them ready for deposition, shoot us an email and give us your best tip. We may very well add that in one of our upcoming episodes on preparing clients for deposition. You can send your suggestions to depositionpodcast at jimgarritylaw.com. So in this episode, I'm going to cover some of the basics I go over with clients about the deposition itself, the layout of the room, if it's going to be in person, the people present, their roles, how long it's going to take, and so on. Yes, I talk about the layout of the room. I leave nothing to the imagination, and here's why. From time to time, I've had clients, fairly sophisticated folks, that will ask me during the course of a deposition prep session whether I'm going to be there with them at the deposition. My first reaction is, hmm, what? But I don't think any less of my client for thinking that they might be there by themselves. It's just a poignant reminder that many people who aren't in and out of the judicial system on a regular basis just literally have no idea what's about to happen. My job is to change that. My job is to eliminate any speculation or guesses about what's going to happen. My job is to make them an expert and a powerful witness in their own case. And I do that by explaining the process top to bottom. So let's get started and keep in mind that for purposes of our core essential series that our hypothetical client that we're getting ready for deposition is reasonably bright but has had limited exposure to the judicial system. I also assume for purposes of our discussion that the client either has never had their deposition taken before or has not had a deposition anything like this one. Sometimes they may have had a minor role, a sort of cameo appearance in someone else's case but haven't been in the hot seat in a case of their own. Also, for purposes of this conversation, I'm assuming that the examining lawyer is the opposing lawyer. In other words, that this is a plaintiff versus defendant case, one party on each side. So when my client comes in, I obviously say good morning, and I explain that what I'm about to do is to make them an invincible witness. I explain that since they've never had their deposition taken before, I'm going to give them an outline or a framework of the process, and I explain it's going to be important to understand what a deposition is and how it's going to be used. In other words, I don't just jump into the substance of the case as soon as we sit down. I want to explain the event that's about to take place. So I tell them that a deposition is a question and answer session, like an interrogation in a way, about the relevant facts of the case. I stress that the opposing lawyer may or may not ask questions about all of the relevant facts, but may instead choose to stay away from certain topics. I tell my clients that sometimes a lawyer who is planning on taking this case to trial may not expose my clients to a full range of questions because they may be planning on ambushing my client on certain topics at trial. In other words, the opposing lawyer may opt not to preview their full line of questions on important topics if the opposing lawyer doesn't see the case likely to settle. So I let the clients know that it's going to be about the facts in the case, but it might not be about all of them. I tell them not to get frustrated if the lawyer skirts around helpful facts, because that's not really an opposing lawyer's goal. That lawyer's goal is to ask questions that reflect their strategy. 
if their strategy is to hold fire until trial, the deposition may be a bit more frustrating because it will seem like the client doesn't really have the opportunity to tell the whole story. That's okay. The goal is to open fire for us on the questions that are asked and not to sweat the stuff that isn't. I also take pains to explain either the physical layout of the location where the deposition will take place or the manner in which the video or telephonic deposition will take place. If it's an in-person deposition, I will usually pull out a sketch pad and a Sharpie marker and draw a layout of the room. I want to eliminate as much possible anxiety on the part of my clients as I can. And knowing where we're going to be and where everyone will be situated helps do that. So I don't skip that. If it's a rectangular conference room table, that's what I map out on my sketch pad. I explain that the court reporter will typically sit at the end, not always, but typically, and that the client and I will sit on one side of the table and the opposing lawyer will likely be seated directly across from the client. I explain that the court reporter is there to create a word-for-word -word record of everything that everyone says. And I explain that the record created will be in both printed form and on audio, at least for the court reporter's own use. And as you know from an earlier episode, I'm a fan of, depending on the circumstances, independently recording the testimony, which you are allowed to do as a matter of right, at least in federal court. So I may explain that the other side may also independently audio record the testimony. And so the client has to be sensitive as to how their voice comes across on those recordings. Yelling and screaming, not generally a good idea. When I independently audio record a deposition, whether it's to play for trial or whether it's simply to serve as a backup resource to review the transcript when we get the draft, I may opt to use the recording at trial if the opposing witness has acted in a way that's likely to turn off the jury. So I remind my client of that possibility. I also talk about the peculiarities of video depositions, which we mostly these days commonly refer to as Zoom depots. I make sure that I explain to my clients that if they're at home during the deposition, it's critical not to have background noise, not to have others who are sitting on camera or who are chipping in on the testimony, and not to refer to documents or notes that aren't being shown to them. In other words, the examination is going to proceed like it would at trial, and of course, witnesses can't show up with a briefcase and walk up to the witness stand with their own set of documents. Can't do that. Same thing in a deposition. I also alert them to the possibility, if it's a Zoom depot and the client's at home, that the opposing lawyer may try to capitalize on the fact that the client's at their house and may ask the client to retrieve whatever documents are within reach. I covered that in a prior episode as well. Depositions are not document productions unless the deposition was noticed deuces tecum. So I let my clients know about that. I also let them know that if they have their cell phone handy, they may also be asked mid-deposition to retrieve phone numbers, photos, whatever documents might be stored on the phone. Again, my view on that is the same as mid-deposition demands that a client go get documents. I don't agree to that unless it's a deuces tecum deposition where the lawyer let us know in advance that they wanted my clients to bring documents. If it's a video deposition, I make sure the client is familiar with the mute button and the video off button so that there are no inadvertent stray remarks or visuals being transmitted on breaks. If it's a video deposition, I will also sketch out, an in-person video deposition, I will also sketch out on my pad the location of the videographer and the camera. Again, very simple stuff, but the goal here is to let clients know exactly what they're going to see so that clients have 
an immediate comfort level when they walk into the room and everything is laid out exactly as I told them. I also remind the client, if it's a video depot, a remote one, that there may be others on the video and that some participants may have their screens blacked out. Clients should not assume that those folks aren't listening to every word. I also point out that some participants on a video call may be properly or improperly recording the video without telling us and to be mindful of that. I tell them that for purposes of what they say and how they say it and their facial gestures, they should assume that all audio and all video is being captured by somebody, whether it was properly noticed that way or not, from the moment they turn on their video and audio feed before the deposition formally begins to the moment they hit leave meeting and disconnect. If it's an in-person deposition, I explain that there may be others present other than the lawyers and the court reporter and a videographer if that's applicable. I explain that the law allows representatives of the parties to be present and that depending on the nature of the case, uh, the representative, if it's not an individual defendant or plaintiff, may be someone from the organization whose very presence is intended to agitate and upset my client. If there's a particular person who harassed or abused my clients in some way, I talk about the fact that that person might be present, how it will affect them, and how to deal with it. I also explain that no matter who the representative is that's present, and there may be more than one, that the representative cannot say or do anything to disrupt their testimony. In that respect, I'm often reminded of that um, mechanical genie. I think it was called Zoltar in the booth in that movie from the 1980s with Tom Hanks. I think it was called Big. He put a quarter in the machine and the toy genie's eyes turned a bright red. But the genie doesn't move and of course the genie doesn't come out of the machine. Well, I sometimes I'll tell my clients that the representatives from the other side are something like Zoltar. You know they're mad. Maybe their eyes are beat red too. I, I don't know. But they can't say or do anything if they're present as a representative. And I have an absolute zero tolerance policy, and I mean zero, for shenanigans by anyone in the room, including representatives. I tell clients that being examined under oath is surprisingly exhausting from a mental standpoint. So they've got to take regular breaks to clear their head. I'm sure you know from your own experience, no matter how many depositions you've done, that many clients don't sleep well the night before the deposition and will frequently skip breakfast. They also frequently want to skip lunch. Those are terrible ideas. They need to sleep well and they need to eat whatever meals they normally eat on the day of deposition. And again, they've got to take regular breaks or they are going to start becoming mentally exhausted without even realizing it. So I stress the importance of breaks. And I'm not talking about breaks to be clever where my client hits a difficult question and wants to confer with me in the hallway before they answer. I'm just talking about regular breaks every 60 minutes, every 90 minutes, whatever works for your client. I know I've talked about a study by a Stanford University professor who found that chess masters can burn up to 6,000 calories a day, unbelievably, while in tournaments. That's three times what the average person consumes each day. And those chess masters are literally sitting motionless during the entirety of the tournament each day. But the brain is the body's largest consumer of energy. And if you're not feeding it with rest and food and regular breaks, I tell my clients, 
you're going to have a problem as the deposition wears on. Now, I also explained that the lawyer will begin the deposition with a series of questions, typically about client backgrounds, education, work history, family life, the names of family members, their ages and their occupations, whether there are any family or friends who know something about the case, whether there are family members that live in the area where the jury will be drawn from, criminal convictions and arrests, bankruptcies, prior lawsuits, divorces, and so on. And when I do my mock examination of clients as a final test of their battle readiness, I make sure that I mirror the deposition as I understand it will go. I don't skip those preliminary questions. Now, in my first year of practice, I did sometimes skip the preliminary stuff, figuring that maybe it wasn't that important and let me just get to the substance of the issues. But then I noticed pretty quickly that even though the clients knew these background questions were coming because I had told them about it, they still seemed very uncomfortable. I mean, and I understand that. Here's this complete stranger, an adversary, and a very bright one, asking my clients about their children's names, their spouse's names, prior lawsuits, medical conditions, medications that my clients took the night before. So I don't want the deposition to be the first time that my client has to answer those questions. I want them to develop a comfort level start to finish. So I began asking all of the preliminary questions as well in my mock deposition, and I explained to my clients why I asked them and why the opposing lawyer may ask them. For example, prior lawsuits, I may tell clients, can be a trove of information, including information that might contradict what the client's saying in the current lawsuit. Opposing lawyers want to know about bankruptcies because they want to know if there's anything that might affect a claim for damages. If my client is a plaintiff in a given case, the adversary may want to know if the bankruptcy is currently open or was open at the time the claim uh, arose and whether the client disclosed the lawsuit as an asset in the bankruptcy petition. I tell my clients that opposing lawyers will want to know about criminal convictions, arrests, charges for credibility and other purposes. They want to know the names of family members just in case a family member has a role as a witness or in case one of those family members is sitting in the jury box in the potential jury pool. I explain that uh, opposing lawyers want to know about divorces because those are frequently very fertile grounds for pertinent information. Same thing with medical histories, depending on the nature of the case. And of course, I explain that once the background issues are out of the way, the balance of the deposition will generally focus on what opposing lawyers think are important to prove their claims or defenses. All right, so let's talk about some of the specific guidances that I give clients. First, I tell them that contrary to what they may have read or seen on TV, they must answer every question that is asked of them, and they need to plan on doing that throughout the day without constantly looking at me for guidance on whether it's okay to answer a question. I let them know that if there's a question they should not answer, I'll speak up. Other than that, I tell my clients, you need to focus on the question that's being asked and answer every question fully, completely, honestly. Now, depending on who the opposing lawyer is, I will tell my clients that the lawyer on the other side is solid, a straight shooter, and is not the type of lawyer who will go haywire on them or who will ask wildly inappropriate questions. I explain that if the lawyer does fall into that category in a given case, I'll let them know and I'll stress that it's important, perhaps, for the client to pause a bit more before answering a question because I may be more likely to object. 
but most lawyers do it the right way and I let the client know that again to lower their anxiety. So I tell them, whether you think the questions are relevant or completely irrelevant, you must answer them unless I tell you otherwise. I also explain that it's highly unlikely I'm going to instruct them not to answer a question at any time during a deposition. So please don't look at me every time to see if I want you to answer. Of course I do. I'll let you know if I need to speak up. I tell them to focus on the question and on giving their best and most accurate answer. I tell them that they may have heard some people say or may have read online that the best way to respond to questions is with a simple yes or no and nothing else. But I explained to them that's not how real depositions work. Most questions will require you to give explanations. There will be some questions that do call for a simple yes or no, but most will require detail. I next explain that depositions on TV and in movies are not realistic. A real-life deposition is very different. They will not be able to look at me for signals on how to answer anything. I tell clients, no blinks, no winks, no nods, no hand gestures, no nothing. I tell them that the purpose of this conversation is to get you ready and that once the deposition begins, the answers are coming from you. I have very few clients uh, who ask me to give them some kind of signal during the deposition. Maybe one in a thousand might say something like that, but usually kidding. I don't actually remember any client who's ever asked me in a serious way to give them a sign, but I'd straighten them out very quickly if they did. I tell them that a judge would likely impose very serious sanctions against both of us if we engage in that kind of conduct. TV lawyers might do that. But real lawyers, at least those who want to remain lawyers, do not. I stress again that the opposing lawyer is not our friend and is not neutral. And I mean that with no disrespect. Again, for purposes of this discussion, we're assuming it's a one versus one battle and that the examining lawyer is the adversary. So I tell clients that lawyers sometimes start depositions in a very friendly way with something like, I'm just here to find out what happened. And they may mean that as just a little bit of friendly banter, but I stress to clients that this is not an accurate characterization of what the lawyer's there to do. I explain to clients, the only neutral participants in your lawsuit are the judges and juries. Lawyers are advocates for their client. Think of the opposing lawyer as the coach for the opposing team, and that me and my staff are the coach for their team. I stress to them, never confuse the roles of the lawyers. We are not neutral. We're there to win. The opposing lawyers were hired to hurt your case. And the deposition is a significant opportunity for them to do exactly that. Some lawyers want you to assume that they are neutral or maybe even your friend. They need you to relax your guard, I may explain, and perhaps to pay less attention than you might otherwise to what the lawyers are asking. And I tell them, the minute you lower your guard is the minute you start getting hurt. Opposing lawyers are there to do you damage. There is no other purpose. I also tell them that because we are coaches on one team or another, we are there to advocate a viewpoint and to find holes in the opposing viewpoint. Now, some clients arrive for this conversation with a mindset that goes something like this. Well, I'm sure that the adversary probably lied to their lawyer, and I bet when they hear the truth, they're going to tell him to settle, the lawyer. Well, that might actually happen in a case or two, 
but I tell them that the lawyer is there to find holes in our story. So the lawyer is likely to filter what they hear through their own lens. So I tell my clients, don't dwell on a desire to persuade the opposing team's coach to change their mind. As a general rule, that's just not going to happen. So I say, changing the opposing lawyer's mind should not be one of your primary goals. Assume, as you should, that the opposing coach is there to help your adversary win. Focus on the questions, remember what your mission is, and stick to that. All right, two other points and then we'll wrap this episode up. I explain that the opposing lawyers may try to put words in their mouth and here's how I tell it. I say that there are two basic styles of questions. One is what I call the pull method. This is where the lawyer frames questions that are intended to pull information out of you. These are questions like the following. So tell me what you did next. What did he say? Who did you talk to? Tell me what happened. The other type of examination question generically is what I call a push question. This is a more aggressive, more antagonistic form of questioning that requires you, I tell my clients, to stay sharp and to be very careful. A push question, for example, would be something like this. Well, you never made a complaint to human resources, did you? You looked away before the light turned, didn't you? You knew the content was a trade secret, didn't you? Another form of push style questioning might simply be a declarative statement like this. You knew the content was a trade secret. Wait for the answer. You looked away before the light turned. Wait for the answer. You know, at some point, once you get into the um, pace of questioning, it becomes a little unnecessary to end every question with didn't you or correct. So I will often use declarative statements. Sometimes I'll get witnesses who look at me like, is that a question? And I say, well, it's a declarative statement with which I'm asking you to agree. And once we get into a rhythm, it becomes unnecessary as a practical matter to keep asking or ending every question with didn't you or correct, that kind of thing. It helps speed things along. But I tell my clients to be especially wary with push style questions. I explain that that method where the opposing lawyer is essentially pushing facts on my clients for them to agree with isn't really asking the client what they know to be true. What it's really doing is telling my client what my client should believe is true and demanding that my client agree. So I tell them, listen with great caution if you're encountering this method of examination and that it's important to speak up if any component of the declarative statement is inaccurate in any way. So I stress to my clients, look, if you get this kind of examination where the opposing lawyer is essentially putting words in your mouth and demanding that you agree, you must never agree to a statement that is just close to what you would have said on your own. If it's not 100% correct, you've got to speak up and explain why the facts or the characterization of the facts, such as you were going 79 miles an hour, that's a fact, or you were going really fast, that's a characterization, that you've got to speak up and explain why it's wrong and why you don't agree. In that respect, I tell my clients, you know, the opposing lawyer is not under oath. Just like police officers, when they interrogate a suspect, they're not under oath. The only person in the room who's going to be under oath is you. Lawyers sometimes bluff about the facts. Sometimes lawyers will claim that a particular fact is true if the lawyer merely suspect it's true, even if they don't know for sure. But I tell my clients, once you agree to it, it's an admitted fact for all purposes. 
Sometimes lawyers may tell you that a particular witness is going to say something that the witness hasn't actually said yet. The lawyer may say, what if I tell you that Mr. Jones says that never happened? You know, I tell my clients, if you're not careful and if a, an opposing lawyer puffs about what other witnesses have supposedly said, your case is going to get off track in a hurry. So it's important to tell our clients that they should not assume that what an opposing lawyer represents as fact is true. And as you know from jury instructions that are uh, read by most courts, what lawyers say is not evidence. Now, there are a couple ways to handle this. Sometimes I will do it this way. I may tell my clients, look, you may hear what I call mystery meat evidence, where an opposing lawyer makes representations about what witnesses have said or will say. But what we know is that those witnesses haven't testified yet. We don't know what they will say. The witnesses may not have said that at all, or maybe they said something similar, but not what the lawyer quoted. Or maybe the witnesses said exactly what the lawyer quoted, but the recollection is mistaken. You just don't know. So I tell my clients, you can't buy into unsworn lawyer representations about things we don't know are true as if they are proven facts. Sometimes lawyers will say that to your client. They'll say, look, uh, Miss Anderson, would you agree with me that if Mr. Jones said he didn't know that, that you couldn't possibly have a case? Your client has to be ready for that. They could easily start to lose faith in their own case if they've not been alerted to the fact that what the opposing lawyers are representing is really in the nature of unproven argument. And it's okay for the client to say, I don't know if the witness said that, so I can't make any assumptions about it. On this note, a favorite of many opposing lawyers is, well, if Mr. Jones said that, are you calling him a liar? I do stress to my clients to refrain from name calling. If someone said something or is believed to be ready to testify about something, I tell my clients it's fair enough just to say, no, I'm absolutely not using the label liar. I'm not calling anyone a liar. It's just not correct and to leave it at that. All right, one last point for this episode. As part of the early deposition prep, we'll tell clients that it's important you understand that this deposition is not a practice run. Just because it's not in a courtroom doesn't mean it doesn't count. The opposite is true. Everything you say counts. So it's critical that you understand that most cases never go to trial because they either settle or they're thrown out based on what the parties and the witnesses said in depositions. So I stress to my clients, you know, this is not a situation where you're going to come in today and give essentially a rough draft of your testimony, where you're going to work out the kinks in what you say today, get a feel for what's important, and then do the quote unquote real thing at trial. If your deposition testimony isn't solid, you may never have another chance to tell your story. There may be no trial. So this is it. This is the real deal. All right, that's it for today's episode. In the next episode, segment five, we'll cover four or five more fundamental points to discuss with your client in getting them ready for deposition. It may take us another four or five episodes to cover them all, but I want to make sure I cover as many topics for you as I possibly can. Okay, as always, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And let me say this about leaving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a minute, and it does take just a minute, maybe less, go to wherever you get your podcast and please leave us a five-star rating. You can add some comments about what you like about the episodes as well, but do leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings are a fantastic way to say thank you to the production staff 
and you just can't fully appreciate how they react when they see another excellent rating come in. It makes everything worthwhile. So thanks again and have a great day.